I think this music scene is as vibrant as any, um, or not more, even more so than a lot of cities. I would say it's as vibrant as New Orleans. You know, if you go to Seattle or Portland or Philadelphia or Detroit or New York. And I think I, I just feel like maybe we don't get to tell the story or enough about uh, the legacy and all the great music that happens here, you know. You're listening to jazz saxophonist and composer Rob Dixon, also known as the musical mayor of Indianapolis. Rob's my guest on this episode of Michael Loves Indy. Hi, friends. Welcome back to Michael Loves Indy. In this episode, I was excited to feature a conversation that I actually recorded in 2019 with the great Rob Dixon. Rob is a jazz saxophonist, composer, community leader here in Indianapolis, and I think he's the most recognizable face of Indianapolis's jazz community for the past 20 years. And for that reason, he's earned the nickname the musical mayor of Indianapolis. And, uh, Rob's just a really engaging person. He's got a lot of interest. You can have a conversation with him about music, about science, about world affairs, really anything. And I wanted to ask him to just talk about his life because there are some gaps that I don't know a lot about. I know he's from the East Coast. I know he came to go to the Indiana University Jacobs School of Music. I know he lived in New York for a while before coming back to Indianapolis in the early 2000s. And, um, He's also just a really generous person. There was a time in my 20s where I would be going out to see live music multiple times a week. It's still a very important part of my life, but I didn't get out as much as I did when I was in my 20s. And uh, Rob was just incredibly nice to me, and I was just kind of a fanboy hanging around. He was just incredibly kind and inviting. And he's very generous. He does a lot of uh, teaching young musicians, helping them um, really achieve their visions. You can find him playing in any number of bands to support younger musicians as they develop their style and develop their audience. Um, he, he, we, we talk in this uh, conversation about his latest album, which was released a couple of years ago called Coast to Crossroads which was produced by the great seven-string jazz guitarist Charlie Hunter, who's a friend of Rob's, who Rob regularly tours with. Rob also tours regularly with the Headhunters, members of Herbie Hancock's uh, 1970s band, and he's traveled around the world with the Headhunters. It's a really interesting conversation. Um, We recorded it at Site Strategics a couple of years ago, a great uh, um, media uh, production company, Indie Chamber member, so really appreciative to them. And yeah, I just uh, I ho- hope you enjoy the conversation. He's definitely somebody that I've, I'm very grateful that I've gotten to know and has uh, given very generously to Indianapolis and to the Indianapolis music community. So hope you enjoy this conversation with Rob Dixon. Welcome to the show. This is this is unbelievable. Um, uh, Rob Dixon is here, and uh, I am just thrilled to get the opportunity to do this with somebody that I've known for over 15 years just as a fan of his music and as a fan of jazz. Um, he's considered one of the greatest tenor sax players in America and um, also is very generous giving of his time to the Indianapolis Jazz Foundation, getting youth interested in jazz, known to a lot of people as the mayor, as the mayor of our uh, jazz community. Rob Dixon, welcome to the show. Thanks, Michael. Uh, thanks for having me, and thanks for all those kind words, definitely. No, I just, it's, yeah. it's great, and I, it's, it's, I'm excited to be here today because I, I, uh, we want to talk about your new album, Coast to Car- Crossroads. Coast to Crossroads, excuse me, I'm nervous. Um, uh, it's one of my favorite albums of the year. If I was doing oh, a wow. top 10, it's probably in my top three, just in terms of the, the records that I've played the most frequently, um, as both as a longtime fan of you and, a, and as of Charlie Hunter. And we're going to oh, right. get into the album um, and, and the making of the album. 
before we do that, though, um, I want to fill in some gaps in your biography because, okay. again, I've known you as a, as a fan and as a friend here in, in the last decade plus, but um, kind of how you got to Indianapolis and sort of how you came to this um, role within the community. And I think I know that you were born in um, and, and raised in the Atlanta area. Is that right? Right. So I was raised in the Atlanta area. I was actually born in Baltimore. Okay. So that, yeah, but... Okay. Yeah, I'm pretty much raised in Atlanta. And then Hampton and, University. And then, uh, Hampton University. And then uh, there was a great trumpet player by the name of Derek Gardner. That yep. was at grad school at IU. And he's like, you have to come to IU. You have to transfer. You have to get over here quick. David Baker is the man. And I was like, okay, yeah. what do I got to do? I called David Baker. I, I'll send in a tape. I'll audition. Whatever I need to do I'll, just to be a part of that music school. So I came to Bloomington. And that's how I got to Indiana. So obviously, to, but to get into IU and even get the attention of somebody like David Baker, I, I, rec- I realized you had to have been working on that for a long time, you know, as a kid. Were there, were there early experiences and exposure to jazz that made you think, as a kid, I can do this and I, I can make a life out of this? Um, yeah, you know, I think there was a turning point when I was in high school and probably like a junior, maybe a sophomore or junior, where I started taking um, private lessons with a really esteemed um, musician by the name of Charles Bradley in the Atlanta area. I think he he was involved with help starting the Atlanta Symphony, but he was very connected, and he played um, the saxophone like Cannonball Adderley. He was just an amazing player, but he had a wait list of students. And then, you know, he put me in the right direction because I didn't, you know, I was listening to kind of like, Grover Washington and David Sanborn and Spiral Gyra and the things I've heard on the radio. And then he was like, you need to listen to Cannibal Adderley. You need to check out Coltrane. You need to check out these records. And he told me what to check out, and that kind of set me in the right direction. So from there I was like, okay, uh, I think I might be really interested in this music. Mm-hmm. At what point At what point did it click that, oh, wow, I can, I can improvise. I can, I can interpret this song the way I want to play it. When, did that at some point, you know, in, in you know junior high or high school, did that did that click? Um, you know the yeah the process of the improvising. I guess um, what has always been, or the concept has always been alluring. But actually getting to the process of being a good improviser is always a struggle to this day. You know, yeah. I'm always trying to figure out ways to be better. So it's. It's always feels like an uphill battle. Yeah. I mean, uphill climb, which is a great thing because you you know um, you're constantly learning. You know, uh, to especially trying to express yourself, learning different improvisational techniques and devices, and more about theory. So um, it was it's something that just always made me curious and more. Yeah. You know, and and I think jazz is a type of music that is kind of like. Um, uh, Pandora's box or a rabbit hole, you just can keep keep going, you keep going. Yeah. You know, and it's um never ending. I read a quote from you talking about going from Hampton University to the IU jazz program where you likened it from going going to a good college to MIT or something of that nature. Oh right. Um was that um, were, were there, were, when you, you, you mentioned meeting David Baker, I was, I was in awe when I met, when I met the great, uh, David Baker for the first time before he died, um, seven or eight years ago. Um, what, what was that, what was that transition like? And did you know that you were ready and how did you know? Um, the transition was actually, uh, pretty difficult because, um, going to school like IU, you're going to like, I mean, the top one of the top schools for music in the in not only in the country in the world. It's it is like going to MIT or Johns Hopkins if you go to study. Or, you know, so everybody they bring in is super like talented, and there's a lot of the the bar is set really high. So your all of your contemporaries are like amazing players, and like you know, and I'm there, and I'm thinking, oh man, I have a lot of work to do. But ha- having the bar set high makes you just work. And you know, you know where it is, and it was that was a great um, setup for me to go to New York. Actually, in New York, it kind of felt the same way as when I, it was like, man, the best musicians and artists in the world come here to play and to compete. So the bar was even set higher. So, yeah. you know, um, but that is great for uh, I think artists and musicians because yeah. that, that pushes you. Were there? And I, I know you know young people react to 
adversity in different ways. And I'm just right. imagining at Indiana studying with people like David Baker, some of the best in the world. Did you, did you develop habits of just like, would you just like, you know, disappear for hours, you know, and, and did you, did you develop sort of routines that allowed you to compete with these, you know, other top jazz musicians? You know, I, uh, well, I was so interested in the music that I spent most of my time in the practice room. You know, I would just almost like live there and hang out, you know, I mean, and kind of my whole world socialized there. And, um, so, um, it was a great thing. I don't know if it was a great thing for my studies necessarily, but you know, um, you, you um, there are a lot of musicians that go to school to dedicate all their time towards practicing and become a better musician. Yeah. And, so it was <clears throat> that was a great experience for me. I mean, it was like, and David really gave me the building blocks to really figure out how how jazz improvisation works. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and among jazz musicians, I know there's a whole spectrum, and because I know I've known some jazz musicians that are really more interested in, you know, kind of bebop and post bebop, and really left kind of out there. Right. You're somebody that that you know if you if you go to um, shows in Indianapolis or see you touring, you know, East or West coast, you play bebop and you play funk and you play, you know, big band and R and B was, was that, was the, your, the interest in different genres, something that was always there or was that something that came later? You know, <clears throat> I think I was interested in a lot of music, um, that I, I grew up with, like, you know, R and B and hip hop and things like that just early on. And then I became a big fan of like post bebop and then bebop, and then actually became a huge fan of swing working with Illinois Jaquette. Yeah. You know, because I learned how like powerful that music is. So yeah. then I feel like, well, I felt like I need to become really um, literate and very, very, uh, you know, um, good at playing all these styles of music. Yeah. Because that's going to give me more opportunities to work with all different types of musicians. I'm glad you brought up the great Illinois Jaquette because, um, again, n knowing a little bit about you, I know New York was a pivotal experience for you mm -hmm. because there, there are some people from older generations who kind of took an interest in you and, and sort of, I know, um, uh, you know, we're helping you make contacts and kind of get known. Can you share, you know, a couple of those, uh, who those, you know, individuals were who were important in, when, during your New York years? Um, so yeah, well, I think when I'm, when I lived in New York, when I first moved there, um, great trumpet player, Derek Gardner and his brother, Vincent and Vincent plays with Lincoln centers, had played with him forever. And I think he was on tour with Mar Marcus Roberts at the time. I, they were my roommates. So I was very connected to just musicians and, um, the, and then I played, there was a great, uh, alto saxophone Craig Bailey and he had a jam session and he actually gave me a my first break he said hey I want you to sub for me on um, uh, my jam session I'm going out with Yanni because he was going out Yanni literally out Yanni yeah Lonnie. yeah yeah Yanni so he's yeah. in playing that the, so I sub for him and then there was a guy uh, in the audience is like I really like your sound you know he's like man you know call me in the morning and we exchanged numbers and I didn't think much of it and then the next morning he called me and it was a uh, composer, a writer, Weldon Irving, who was known wow. for writing Mr. Clean, that song. Um, he wrote Young, Gifted, and Black for uh, Nina, uh, Nina Simone. Oh, sorry. And yeah. then later covered by Aretha. Is that the same right. song? Uh, exactly. Okay. okay, got it. Yep. So he, he's pretty prolific, and he was very close. But not only was he in the jazz genre, he was really close with Tribe Called Quest and uh, Q-Tip, and he was, um, um, yeah, he was a big uh, inspiration for the Wu-Tang Clan. Yeah. So everybody in Brooklyn was like, well, and Irving's the greatest. And that's how I actually met. I got to meet, I, he was doing a Broadway musical, oh, well, an off-Broadway musical, so off-Broadway, it was in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> it, was called, uh, it was called Raising Hell, and it was a musical ad adaptation of Smokey Robinson's music. Yeah. I got to meet Smokey Robinson. I got to meet Lenny White. I got to meet um, so many good, good musicians that would just come through to hang out and to see Weldon. And Weldon gave me my first, I think I was made 400 bucks a week. And I mean, that was great because it kept me in New York. I was like, man, I had steady income. I could actually eat, you know? So yeah, that was a, uh, and they, he was big. And then a little further down, um, uh, there was a guy named Tim Williams who used to play with Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. And he knew 
he knew the Eleanor Jaquette and his wife really well, and then they were looking for a tenor player, and they were going on tour like in like literally like I think it was a Monday, and they were going on tour on Friday, and they needed a tenor player because somebody had left, and so I went over to Illinois' house and played for him. Yeah. And then when I got approved, I had to go to take a train up to Hartford because I didn't have a passport. I had to get a passport like in a day. So I could you could do it there back then. I don't know if you can do it now, but, um, you know, they had a plane ticket for me. I showed them my plane ticket. And, and that weekend I was in, I think we were in Germany someplace. Yeah. And that was my really first time traveling as a uh, musician. And, uh, you know, that was a great experience. I'm just imagining you playing like six nights a week. Is that at this time in your life? Is it or is it, is it even seven nights a week? It was. I started, well, I mean, you know, and a lot of it was playing at jam sessions, like when I initially went to New York, I would go out to this. Actually, I had a routine where I would practice all day, and then I would take the train into into Manhattan about midnight or midnight or one, and then I'd stay in the city until about six a.m., seven wow. a.m., and then I'd take the train back to Brooklyn, and then you know, and then get up around two o'clock in the afternoon, yeah. practice. You know, eat and practice some more, and then do the same routine over. So, wow. like, it was really I was living the nightlife. But um, I, eventually, I started to work six nights a week in in, uh, in Manhattan and Brooklyn. Wow! So that was fantastic. Incredible. So we we'll get back to the story here in a bit about what got you to Indianapolis. But you you know, you've been working with Charlie Hunter mm -hmm. uh, for a while. You did a West Coast tour. I know a couple, right. uh, a couple of them, right? With Charlie. Yeah, I did an East Coast tour and East a West Coast, Coast, Coast yeah. tour. And, um, and for, for those, those of our listeners who um, are not um, jazz fans, you know, if you, if you see, if you saw Harlot Charlie Hunter once, you'd never forget it because I don't know how he does it. Um, plays an eight string guitar, obviously plays three bass strings and then five guitar strings. And so right. it's kind of one man. Um, so a truly, um, uh, you know, uh, unique sound. And, um, I don't know. I mean, there's some, it sounds like there's something compatible about sort of his, his influences and your influences that has made this partnership work. Right. I think so. I mean, he's definitely, you know, a, a phenomenal musician and, um, I don't think anybody does what he does as well as he does in, in the world. He does it, you know, I mean, um, he was on Blue Note Records in the late '90s, and you know he was kind of their star of for the young people. And he actually got brought uh, Nora Jones to the label. It was a big uh, reason for her coming to Blue Note. Um, people don't, you know, he has a lot of um, love for playing with D'Angelo on that Voodoo record. You know, yeah, that was a big record for D'Angelo, and yeah. and Charlie was a big part of that. So he's he's done a lot of things all over the all over the um just musical spectrum. So so I there are two two points of reverence for me. I liked the group Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy with Michael right. Franti in the early '90s, oh, and right. he was in that for a while. And then my wife Helen, whom you know. Um, she's from the Bay Area, went to Berkeley, and she would go when when Charlie was more of a regionally known player. He played at a at a bar in the Mission in San Francisco. Had like a regular a regular spot right. there. I, I mean, we we've tried to see him every time he, he's he's come to town since. But something about how did how did it happen that he says want to do this record and and produce produce the new album? How'd that come about? Well, I could I'll back up to like how I got on tour with him, and yeah, I'll yeah. try to make it short. Sure. So when I did that record, the Dixon Ryan project, yep. I actually knew everybody that was in Charlie's band at the time, and they were touring around. It was John Ellison, and, uh, Derek Phillips, and um, they came to town. I said, man, it would be maybe it'd be a really good combination of getting Melvin with Charlie, even though our, Charlie yep. kind of does the organ thing. I said, well, maybe I could make it work. So I asked him about it, and then I played phone tag with his agent manager for like about four months trying to make this happen and it just the agent was just not he wasn't taking care of biz or whatever it was just weird yep. it was just, it got really weird so years fast forward years later and Charlie said man I felt really bad about the way the agent handled it he said come play with me sit in and I'll pay and he was gonna say I'll pay you a pile of money which is a pile of money to sit in for like a few tunes you know and I was like okay I'll sit in for a few tunes so I learned I learned some tunes and then we started to play it, and he was like, man, I think he really liked the chemistry that we had on stage. So literally like a, a month passed, and he was like, hey, man, can you do this East Coast tour with me? I'm, I've am i got this guy, uh, Carter McLean. He's on. He's the drum set player on Lion King. He's going to take time off 
uh, from New York from doing that Broadway show. We're going to do this. East Coast. I could do it. And so, and then we really got a great chemistry with that group. So the following year I did another, and I did some dates in between and I did another tour on the West Coast. And then that was when we were talk, talked about the record. I don't think we were driving up to Vancouver at the time. And then we it was a good drive from San Francisco to Vancouver. So we had a lot of time yeah. to talk. And then we started talking about, I said, man, you should do a record. And he's like, well, why don't you do a record? And I was like, okay. <laughs> so he yeah. goes, just have me produce it. He goes, I know a lot about, you know, I've been producing records for a long time. And he's like, I'll pick out the studio. And then, you know, he told me to write. He's like, bring about eight tunes, yeah. seven or eight tunes. And we kind of mapped it out that night just in the car. And I was like, okay. And I got back to Indianapolis and started writing tunes and, you know, said, look, set a date. And it was like literally maybe three months later we were in, yep. we were in Brooklyn doing the record. And I, I highly, highly encourage people to watch the, the Schofield uh, documentary because Mike Clark, I forgot about how did I know Mike Clark? And it was, it was Herbie Hancock right. thrust and, and the, the albums during the seventies got a really uh, interesting style. Obviously the guy, or at least in the film, he comes across as kind of a character, you know, funny oh, he's, guy. Yeah. He's definitely a comedian. Yeah. And he's had a great, he's had a fantastic, I mean, he was with Herbie Hancock and the head earners. Yeah. He uh, was in Brand X. He replaced Phil Collins in Brand X. Oh, wow. Cause, uh, Brand, you know, Phil was going to start some band called Genesis at the time. <laughs> you know, he was like, yeah, there's some Where? band called Genesis. Yeah. He was going to start it. I was like, okay, well you, so he's a big, Mike's a big part of music history. Plus, He's probably one of the most sampled drummers yeah. um, of of all time. You know, all those oh, '90s, '80s, '90s hip hop records have his drum yeah. beats on there. So there's a groove on the, the track um, "Nag Champa" or whatever that I, that, oh, right. I keep, that I keep going back to. Obviously, oh, right. yeah. I'll be surprised if people aren't aren't sampling that one and others from the album. So what was it? What was, what was the inspiration on that on that uh, that track? The Nag Champa. Yeah, just probably like you know, a lot of the clubs that we played were kind of like. Um, the the in the in the dressing room or in the green room, it always smelled like the 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 blend of like nog champa and uh, marijuana, yeah. the weed. You know, there's like that perfect blend. So every, I mean, that's the kind of what that's what the it's jazz music. Right? Yeah, it's jazz music. Or you know, we kind of play where hippies are, and it's like, man, that's that's always the go to scent. <laughs> right. Nog champa. You know? Right. I love that track. Yeah. Um. So I mean, you know, we're, I want to. I, I do want to go back to um, how you got. You you did New York for several years. What six, what, seven, six? Uh, yeah, about seven years. About seven years, and then I know it was not long after nine eleven happened, right. um, and you were uh, getting married and thinking about kind of kind of long term. What um, talk about the? Can you tell us more about the the decision after seven years in New York about uh, to come back to Indianapolis and what was going through your mind? Um, yeah, so, uh, my ex, when my, um, daughter's mom was, was in New York with me and she was moved out. She's like, I can't, after 9-11, she just didn't want to be able So I said, well, I'm just going to stay here because, I mean, I have, my, my career is here. My life is here. So I stayed for about another year and a half. And, you know, the economy was really affected strongly, yep. particularly in Manhattan and Brooklyn. Um, so, and I was just going back and forth, back and forth over that next year and a half. And, um, and, and then it just became to a point where I was like, man, I'm working just as much in Indianapolis as I am in New York, Yeah, you know? And I was like, I could work, you know? So I made a conscious decision to say, you know what? I'm going to move back to Indianapolis. You know, I've been doing both for a while it was cool, but it was actually kind of getting kind of expensive and. You know, and I was making just as much money here as I was making there. So wow. it just it just felt like a good move to do. I remember I, I had just moved to Indianapolis in 2001 and I had become just a, everybody in the jazz community in Indianapolis was so nice to me. Like I didn't you know, I'd go to Chatterbox on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I'd see Frank Glover and Claude right. Sifferlin, the late Claude Sifferlin. And I'd go on Monday nights to the jazz kitchen and everybody was so nice to me. But I remember. I remember people saying Rob Dixon's coming back to town. Rob Dixon's oh, coming wow. back to Indianapolis. Was was it a warm welcome at the time? Like, did you did, was it was it was it easy to get plugged in and figure out who you were going to work with? Yeah, you know, because I, I've always I've always kept a, a connection with Indianapolis, even when I was in New York. 
Um, so it just felt like coming back home and it was easy. It was just, it was a really easy transition for yeah. me. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And I had a lot of friends here and I still have a lot, a lot of great friends, a lot of great musicians. So I, I felt good about, um, making a move back here and, and then trying to, but you know, when I first got back here, I tried to do, said, well, maybe I can make this a regional place since it was so close to Chicago, Cincinnati. Yeah. So, you know, um, I really reached out to try to do a lot of work in Chicago and Cincinnati and Columbus at yeah. the time too. So, and then I'm, I'm trying to, again, I'm trying to fill in the gaps on my time and my kind of timeline. I know, um, you formed mm-hmm. triology, right. which very, very successful. Um, uh, you know, um, how did that come about? Was it something that you were kind of seeking out or more of a spontaneous thing? Um, yeah, I had always thought about putting together, um, like a, like a horn based kind of groove band in New York and, um, didn't get around to doing it. And when I got back to Indianapolis, I thought it was be the perfect time. I mean, um, uh, right when I created that trilogy, uh, simultaneously, there was a band called Seven Pleasures that yep. that we had together. It was a horn band, so it was kind of basically the same thing, but just a, actually a bigger, a bigger group, like yeah. even more horns. And so um, that was um, really exciting to do at the time um, because uh, that was kind of getting real popular. What's yeah. happening in New York? And I said, well, let's bring it to Indianapolis. Yeah. You know, so. And then you've got we could do a whole, we could do an entire show about your crazy stories about traveling internationally with your, oh, right. you know the State Department and some of the other things. So you know um, again this this could take us down an entire rabbit hole. But you are a group of jazz you're with a group of jazz musicians that's been hired um, mm-hmm. by the State Department to right. to sort of literally as a jazz ambassador to take the music to other right. countries. How did how did that come about? Um, through actually through the drummer that was on on the record, uh, Mike Clark, and yeah. he he got hooked up with this uh, State Department tour, and actually for the longest time I didn't even know it was the State Department. I thought it was Exxon Mobil that was bringing us over because yeah. it was so. I actually learned a lot more about politics than I. It, it was yeah. back, you know, this was like in two thousand twelve, two thousand eleven. So it was, you know, Exxon Mobil had always had like a really good relationship with Russia, so they were footing the bill for this whole uh, State Department tour. So they flew us over, and we had to play at Spazzo House, and um, we had to play all around. We went all over the country, even into Siberia, and took trains everywhere. Almost, you know, we almost, we got hit by a truck in Siberia. Almost died in Siberia. People drive like crazy over there. They don't have any regard. I mean, the guy, I mean, we were all pleading with this driver, like, please slow down, please slow down, please slow down. He's driving like, I don't know, 130 kilometers an hour, you know, on the icy roads. And you're like, uh, ice, you know, you will slide on ice, please. Everybody's like, and they're kind of laughing. He's laughing, smoking a cigarette. like In Siberia. Eh. Yeah, I know. I was like, well, I guess, you know. So, but that was, it was interesting, and uh, we had some very interesting uh, experiences in Moscow and all over, Kantamansk, Tomsk, Novosibirsk. I actually learned the uh, name of these towns and um, uh, went to one, uh, New Russia, um, and the guy came out and uh, said, my name is Sergei Ibosa Jazz of Novosibirsk. You know, it's like, and he came out with a fleet of BMWs, and you know he was it was kind of that thing and it was like I was like okay you're the boss of jazz and he I mean I was like yeah he looks like I mean a fleet of like a BMW like SUVs you know these guys are just carrying our bags and that's like the story of uh, Russian oligarchs it was like he was an like an oligarch pretty much I think somebody maybe Putin or something that's he said <laughs> look you got no no butterfisk so you know, you got the, and it was, and so he had, he owned like four stores. He, we would just like go ahead and after the concert, he took us in the store at night and just give us presents. He's like, <laughs> open up. He's like, here, take these creative reads. And I'm like, is it cool? He's like, I own all of it. It's like, oh, okay, cool. It's yeah. So that was, that was uh, fun to see, you know, and we had to, every place we went, we had to have papers. We had to have a paper of every place. You know, so those old movies when they say show you show me your papers. Yeah. It's like literally you had a stack of papers in your in your in your passport of all the places that you had to visit. And so, you you said I've asked you about this before, but you said the audiences were great on these State Department you tours. Know, yeah, and I thought I re- initially I said, Man, they love jazz, but I think what it was is they love everything anything that is American. Yeah. Because I mean, 
you know, they told me when I went to, before, everybody said, you're going to Russia? Take as many CDs as you can handle. And I'm like, okay, well, so we took over like 300 CDs. And I'm like, yeah, you know, we'll be there for a month. Maybe we'll get rid of them. We got rid of 300 CDs like in four days. We were, I mean, it was that. Yeah. I mean, we were selling. I was like, man, is there anything I could, you know, we had, we asked, we tried to ship some more over and it got caught up in customs, but. I mean, we could have taken over probably 3,000 CDs easily and <laughs> sold them. It's that crazy. That, I mean, just because they were starving for American culture. Yeah. You know. Is that, that group of musicians that met through the State Department, is that kind of a group that stays in touch? Is there, you know, the possibility of... Um, um, yeah, you know, um, I haven't played with Mike. It's just, it was just Mike's trio, Mike Clark's trio, and we've done a few things. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, they so we're always... Talking about going back over. Yeah, that makes sense. That fills that that closes the loop on sort of the how you got them on the album. Right. Um, I think I think we're ready to play another clip. I think we're going to play Memphis Bus Stop. Okay, uh, track two. Great off uh, Coast to Crossroads, uh, an original composition, original uh, by Rob Dixon uh, by off the Rob Dixon Trio, Coast to Crossroads. This is Memphis Bus Stop. Great song. Um, what was Thanks. the inspiration behind the song Memphis Bus Stop? Um, I wanted something to sound that kind of um, sounded like those old stacks recordings, you know. And um, the my experience was at the Memphis Greyhound bus station. Um, and it was actually an event that happened um, about a, a couple days after. My uncle passed away about two days after 9-11. And they had grounded all the flights. So I actually had to take a bus to San Antonio, Texas. And wow. um yeah, no. That was the entry. And I I a lot out of all the bus stops, out of all the Greyhound bus stations and Greyhound bus Greyhound is a great company, but I'm going to say out of all the bus stations in uh the country, that was the most interesting and soulful place. And uh, I use soulful in a very um interpretive uh uh, expression. It was it was kind of crazy. Actually, I had to spend a night in the Memphis bus stop, and it was like some weird stuff goes down in in uh, well in all bus stops, I'm sure. But in Memphis, yeah, Houston came second, but Memphis <laughs> was like. <laughs> so was that was that? What, did the song exist? Did you kind of compose that melody right after that experience, or was this sort of a memory that was lingering? For it was a, just a memory that was lingering. So, yeah. the, and so actually, the song wasn't even written until maybe like about um, two months before the record. So oh, wow. I was just like, man, I want to write a song about Memphis, kind of that that you know that soul stacks yeah. kind of sound. And I said, man, yeah, I had a really weird experience in the Memphis bus stop. So I'll say, I'll call it Memphis Bus Stop. Yeah. You know, 
And then how do you know um, when, you know, your, your songs obviously have very distinctive melodies. Is that something, would you, do you work on those themes and work it and work it for a long time or how, what's, what's the experience of, of composing uh, a song like? Yeah. So my creative, I work a lot of on the piano, so I'll play out chords and then, and then I'll try to, um, hear the melody. Um, I won't write melodies necessarily first. I'll just try to work out a chord progression and then, Sometimes the way I even do the process is I'll I'll play the work out a chord progression and I'll just have my band play it and then just like really try to gravitate towards what feels like kind of improvise over it but really catches yeah you know and sometimes I've been able to get really catchy melodies because I'm like I hear this over it yeah you know? you yeah know? yeah I um. And so with um, with Memphis bus stop, mm-hmm. would you go in and say to Mike and Charlie, "This is kind of the this is kind of what I'm looking for"? Because I know that's that's a song that I notice really brings out Charlie's sound, which sometimes sounds like a B three organ, right? I mean, it's, right? Yeah, I, yeah. I told them I was like, "Man, this is kind of more on that kind of soul, yeah, stack sound." Yeah, and then immediately Charlie went to that. You know, he did yeah, his, yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah, he did his thing. He's like, "I yeah. got it. I yeah. know this." Yeah, you know, he goes. I know this song already before yeah. we even play it. So, yeah, that's great. Yeah. So, are you someone who's kind of always writing or composing, or do you, um, or 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 because I know some artists also then tend tend to work in almost shorter shorter bursts, you know, and then they leave it for a while, and then how do, how does that how does the process of writing work? Um, I think I write on a regular basis. I don't think that I'm constantly writing, but um. I'm writing, you know, it's one thing that I like to do. I like to write music. So, um, you know, and I figured, you know, the more you write, the better chances you have yeah. of getting a good tune out. So yeah. Yeah. Um, that's always in my mind, too. Like, well, I'll just write tunes. And some tunes, like, I'll just, I play for, like, a couple of gigs, and I'm like, yep, done yeah. with that. Yeah. Other tunes, I'll play them and I'll just keep playing. I'm gonna keep playing because I like, well, I want to develop them more because actually, they actually take on another life once you start to play them even more. Yeah. With a with a with a band. When you're, I've always wanted to ask you this question. So when you're when you're cutting a record like this one, clearly you've got songs with melodies and structure. Right. Do you do you go on on the on your improvisation that makes it on the record? Mm-hmm. Do you go in with a sense of kind of where you want to go or or when you're there in the studio, are you just kind of letting the letting the the moment sort of hit you? What in terms of your soloing on this record? Um, yeah. Um, now in my career, I think I kind of just go in the moment, like right. You know, I don't. Pre, there's nothing that I pre-planned. No solos where I didn't have an idea of what I was going to play before we started. Um, you know, when I did my first record, maybe, and I would do like. Sometimes I go back and do my f- prepare solo and then recut it and then recut it yeah. and then, but actually that was just kind of like everything was just off the cuff. Like yeah. Just here's a tune and let me just come and play and it's so and there were no overdubs on yeah. this record so uh, it was pretty much you're hearing first take. Yeah. Well, everybody, everybody that I've brought to see you play for the first time, I know this is going to sound like flattery or whatever but whether you know i've seen you play in front of over a thousand people and i've seen you play at places like the chatterbox with 20 people in there right. and people that that helen and i have like brought out to see you is that that joy always comes across you know what i mean is that is that um just something that's just all kind of kind of always been there you know you know what i mean and i know that's i know that's a thing about jazz music you know it's an improvised music and it forces you like you're saying to be in the moment but um, you know, you gig a lot, right? right? And and it and it seems like you are having fun every time we see you. Is that is that yeah, the case? Yeah. Uh, every time you see me, there are some gigs where I don't have fun, but yeah, okay. every time you see <laughs> yeah. me, um, I like playing original music and I like doing tunes, like playing in places like the Chatterboxes. And <clears throat> I, I have to say, David Andrzejczyk and actually David Ali at the Jazz Kitchen, they're so great about letting artists be expressive. And do their and do, and you know do what they want and do you know original music and whatever you want to do. Yeah, it's an open forum for you to do that. So I think it makes a lot of musicians happy because they can use it as almost like a lab to like work things out. Yeah. Have you have you worked out new songs like oh, at the, at the abs- Chatterbox and Jazz yeah, Kitchen? Absolutely. Were you there? Okay, yeah. just kind of try it and yeah, it. yeah. That's you know the rehearsal. 
the you know and the gig yeah. all at the same time you know I've, I do I do want to say something about Indianapolis because there's a depth of jazz talent that we have for and, and I know I'm imagining it's for a lot of reasons the Indiana Avenue history having Indiana University Jacobs School of Music right down the road right. we have, and 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 I don't know it's like I want more people to know that on a lot of Monday nights. We can see you can see you at the Chatterbox. You know you can see you regularly at the Jazz Kitchen. You can see you with Brandon Meeks, the bass player who played Ron Carter right. in the Miles Davis movie with right. John Cheadle. You know, and these are all just people who live who live in right. Indianapolis. You know, um, have you have you found it a pretty a pretty easy community to to navigate and and work with people? Because it seems like that from the outside, and I it's like I want to believe that it it is like that. Oh yeah, it's really easy to work with. A lot of great musicians and a lot of, um, you know, I think this music scene is as vibrant as any um, or not more, even more so than a lot of cities. Yeah. I would say is as vibrant as New Orleans. Or, yeah. You know, if you go to Seattle or Portland or Philadelphia or Detroit or New York, this is such a, um, every, there's a lot of musicians and a lot of great creative uh, things happening. Um in this town. And I think I, I just feel like maybe we don't get to tell the story or enough about uh, the legacy and all the great music that happens here. You know, yeah. I've been places. I was down in new Orleans once I was playing new Orleans jazz fest, maybe about three years ago. And I remember t- I had two experiences there where it was like, this is weird. It was like, I went to Irving's playhouse, Irving Mayfield, like calls me up on stage. It's packed house about yeah. 500 people. And I mean, it was just like bubbling over. And then, He's like, where are you from? I was like, Indianapolis. He's like, there's no jazz in Indianapolis. Oh, wow. And I, and I was like, man, I'm just about to dunk all over this right. dude. I made <laughs> right. sure. I was like, I'm going to get a house. So, and then one guy came yeah. up to me. He's like, I bet you he'll never say there's no jazz in Indianapolis. <laughs> right. But, I mean, you know, I, I think it's just we don't get to tell the story of yep. Wes Montgomery and, and Freddie Hubbard J. and J.J. Johnson, J. Johnson yep. and Slide Hampton. Right. And um, James Spaulding and all these great musicians, yep. Pookie Johnson, Jimmy Coe, all these people that, yep. you know, and then even going back further, you know, Hoagie Carmichael's from Indiana and Cole Porter's from Indiana and you have uh, Jeanette Records and all this history that has happened yep. here that has kind of been something that has really shaped the way the music is internationally. I know I, I, know, I want to make sure we, we talk a little bit about, I know this is something that's very important to you, your work with the... Indie Jazz Foundation and with the youth. Right. And again, I don't know where you find the time because you're gigging constantly, you're recording and working with people, and you always have a lot of time to work with young musicians and young, you know, jazz mm-hmm. artists and future jazz artists. How do you how how does that factor into um, you know, what you want to accomplish here in Indianapolis as an artist? Uh I I really think that reaching out to the the investment that I want to make is it, it, the best investment I can make is in young people to really to see like the music go forward. And so that's really a high priority priority of mine. So every week I work with the jazz futures as a, as a group that is, is um, a part of the Indianapolis jazz foundation under their umbrella. And uh, we rehearse um, year round, you know, weekly and um, they perform and they're very interested in the music and, Going to schools and 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 being um, an advocate for this music has been a priority of mine. Also, to you know, to because I want um, young people to know how cool this music is, you know, and how much fun that you can have exploring this music, yeah. and how how much it's a part of a culture, the culture, and probably pretty much a part of something that they. They are they they really like you know music that they really like you know. I get inspired by some of our newer jazz artists. I'm thinking I'm a big fan of Robert Glasper and people like that right. who are who are trying to um, make that strong connection between a lot of hip hop and electronic music and basically show no there there's a lot there's a there's a strong link between. Um, those forms of music and right. the ability to improvise and jazz. And do you find like, do you find that there's an interest that is maybe not a, not a, a bridge too far from some of these kids who might have, have grown up listening to, you know, hip hop and pop and electronic to, to right. jazz. Is that, is that um, pretty an easy transition? I think it's very easy transition. And, and you know, the, I think too, um, the person that is probably uh, has a huge uh, responsibility of making that transition 
to taking jazz and to reaching, making it very popular and spreading it into other forms is Wes Montgomery, you know, because he was kind of the original smooth jazz instrumentalist, original jazz. And I mean, recorded all those Beatles tunes and yeah. California Dreaming for A&M Records. And I always tell people, you know, uh, Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass realized, Herb Albert realized, well, man, we can, we can make instrumental pop. Yeah. You know, Chuck Mangione. Right. You know, um, and it basically uh, really pushed that industry in California. Yeah, and he was a main thruster of that of that music being uh, pushed, and so and that worked into hip hop as well. And so hardcore jazz fans, I think, sometimes forget about that. Of course, Wes Montgomery from Indianapolis considered the in the, the greatest. Um, jazz, jazz guitarist guitars. ever, but that right. he did, you know, and I forget about it sometime, how he did bridge into other genres that were really, really, really popular. Oh, yeah. He became like almost a household name. Yeah. And if you go look at old videos, he's like yeah. all these Hollywood talk shows and they're like, he's the greatest guitar player ever. Yeah. You know, it's like he's all Mr. Hollywood. And you're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, so, it's very cool to see, though. There are a couple more questions. This could easily be a three, four hour conversation. I just right. I just so appreciate your time. One is, um, um, is there a, is there a, a jazz artist or, or music artist who's been a, a, a strong influence on you that maybe people wouldn't obviously know? Um, that people wouldn't obviously realize, you know, I know I think about, you mentioned Cannonball Adderley. I know, you know, Joe Henderson and players like that right. and John Coltrane and things like that. But is there one that is maybe lesser known that's been a big influence or from another genre that's been a big influence on you? Um, you know, I don't know. I'm, I like all forms of music, all different styles. So it's kind of hard to say. I mean, of course, you know, um, Coltrane is a big influence, Michael Brecker, yeah. all the, all the typical in, um, but um, not one, not one, not one specifically. Yeah. But like I'm very much well, you know, who's a big man, a big part of me really being interested in music was uh, Shostakovich. Yeah, I was really I heard the Fifth Symphony when, I, and then I think that kind of just made me interested in music. Yeah, you know, period. You know, and then uh, you know, of course, with hip hop groups, you know, Tribe Called Quest is, yeah. uh, was a, a big, a big influence for me. You've worked with Ali from Tribe Called. I've worked with Ali from Tribe Called yeah. Quest, and I actually work uh, with um, members of the Roots too. Questlove, he was actually in the studio when oh I was gosh. working with Ali. And then I'm, uh, a, I'm obsessed with Quest Love Supreme on Pandora. I've listened to like every episode. Oh, yeah. Series. He yeah. was, it was, you know, and it was funny because Weldon Irving is the one that hooked yeah. it up. He hooked it up and then he said, We got this horn section. And then I was like, Man, I want to be on the record, not in the horn section. I was like, Hey, I got my soprano. You want a soprano solo up front? And then they were like, Oh, yeah, let's try it. So I played eight bars of like a sup- solo on this. It was this really it's great weird movie called Ride. It was Malik. Yeah. Yoba and downtown Judy Brown when she was some, you know, when she was actually like early nineties. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. Mid nineties, mid nineties. Okay. And they did that remake of, uh, I think it was kind of a, uh, a remake of that Richard Pryor movie with Cicely Tyson where they take the kids out into the, a bus ride and they take, they take them out to the country, like some, uh, inner city kids to the country. So they called the movie ride and it was, yeah, it was pretty fun. Uh, but, um, but, uh, I was on the soundtrack, you know. I don't. I'm not on. You can hear me on there, but my name isn't on the credit. They just paid me. Yeah, so that's great. Yeah. Um, advice you would have to a young, you know, jazz musician or someone who's, um, you know, who's got got a vision and uh, wants to make a life in music. Any any advice you have? Um. Yeah. You know. I think. Uh, if you want to be a great musician is to always listen to music, expand your recording collection. All the great musicians that I met in New York, the ones that really shot forward, I would go to their house and they would have a CD collection or they would just have a lot of music and listening is the key to be, I think becoming, that's the first step becoming to becoming like a great musician because then you have all this, it's like reading books. You want if you want to be a good writer or, or a good orator, and you don't read. It's like hmm, if you listen to all this music, it gives you all this information, you know. So I, that's a big piece of advice. If you want to pursue music, I say expand your recording collection. I wouldn't say records, you know, or CDs, just recordings, you know, MP3s or whatever. And you said for you, it's like that that um, 
that mission of improvising and creating new melodies, you said that's just always, that's, that's sort of a, a constant journey. It's no, there's no end is, is what you're saying before. It just, right. And it's, uh, it's, it's a great, um, it's, it's very humbling, but it's very powerful too, because, you know, you, you have these, um, you have these, uh, plateaus of success and you feel great when you reach a certain plateau and then you realize, uh Oh, there's so much more that I don't know, but, um, that's, that's what really keeps you going in the music, you know? Great. Well, that's probably a good place to, um, to in a second, go out with a, with a track from coast to crossroads, which is called millions. Before we do that, I just want to okay. thank you, Rob, for taking the time and, um, for not, I mean, not only being an artist in Indianapolis, but for uh, all the time you spend with youth and on the Indie Jazz Foundation, helping us recapture the history that we were talking about of uh, Indiana Avenue, and um, yeah, it's just it's just an exciting time in the city, and I feel like I feel like a lot of the things that you've been working for for a long time, there's like a point of convergence with oh, right. what's happening in in jazz and hip hop and these other forms of music right now. I think um, so, and it just it Definitely. just it just says it just says a lot about our city that you're out there not just as an artist but helping helping people, especially younger people, make connections and connect to it. So I, I just really appreciate it. Oh well, I appreciate you saying that and having me on the show. And we need somebody like you who's doing what you do to really push the city forward. So I think it's I'm, this one was really easy because Coast of Crossroads, one of my favorite albums of the year. It got a great write up in the Los Angeles Times that we would appreciate. Uh, yeah, that, that if you're interested, you should look at. It's got you've got um, a lot of original compositions by Rob Dixon. If you're just if you're if you're kind of a jazz a casual jazz fan, um, there's a great cover of "Wishing Well" by Terrence Trent Darby, right. now Sananda Maitreya, um, but R- Terrence Trent Darby right. from the '80s. And um, and we're gonna go out with a with another Rob Dixon composition called "Millions." Can you give us a snippet on "Millions" before we before we go out? So yeah, I wanted to write a song that kind of like. Um, that was a nod to Vegas, but I didn't want to say Las Vegas or, or a casino town. So I just said, well, man, you know, casino towns across America because now there are a lot of casino cities. So this is millions because you always have the opportunity to win millions when you go to a casino. So they say. That's great. <laughs> so they say. Right. Famous last words. Yeah. Rob Dixon, thank you so much for being on the show. This is Millions by the Rob Dixon Trio from Coast to Crossroads. Thank you so much. Thanks.